It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Because they're not photographed regularly, or in the newspapers, or mentioned on radio, or on television, they are often referred to as ordinary people. But often, these so-called ordinary people have an extraordinary story to tell. Trouble is, finding them firstly, convincing them to tell their story secondly, removing the modesty thirdly, and last, but not least, and probably the most difficult of all, convincing them that their story would be well-received by listeners to a radio program. Stephen Nolan ticks all the aforementioned obstacles, but with a little nudge from the relations, we got there eventually. And this evening on Where the Road Takes Me, we invite you to sit back and listen to his story. It's a story of worldwide travel, oil drilling, boxing, country music, and Formula One motor racing. So, from the comfort of your own home, sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. Good evening and welcome to Where the Road Takes Me. It would probably be everybody's dream just to have done a small portion of what Stephen Nolan has done in his life, let alone all of it. How about meeting the likes of Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Robinson and Marvin Hagler, or attending Formula One Grand Prix in Brazil, the US, Canada, Japan and Silverstone, or taking a motorbike ride through Alaska. Throw in a few meetings with country music stars Waylon Jennings, Merle Haggart and Johnny Cash. But to earn the money to be able to achieve all of this, Stephen worked for 40 years for the Caterpillar Company on the oil sands of Fort McMurray in Canada. But let's start at the very beginning. Stephen Nolan was born and reared in Ballinspittle, a village once famous for its moving statue. He served his time as an apprentice motor mechanic at Slattery's Garage in Bandon between 1964 and 1969 before moving to Dennehy's Cross to gain some diesel experience. I think Benno was a boom town. That I might compare with Kinsale. It was very quiet. There wasn't much happening. But, you know, with the market and um, there was a lot of activity around Benden. I really enjoyed my five years at, in Slattery's with Dan Cullinan. He was a boss. Harry Seaman. He was a foreman. Guys like, uh, I was his apprentice. Paddy Marr. I was his apprentice. Guys like uh, Con Tobin, uh, Brian O'Regan, uh, Dinny Barry, uh, David Crowley. Patton, John Reardon, Bill Hurley, Brendan Cullinan, Finbar Cullinan, John Seaman in the stores, Peter McMurray, I think was the guy's name there, and there was a Larry gentleman in the um, body shop there. Uh, we had a great time at that Slattery's, to be honest about it. Over, uh, it's been great years there. Uh, and what did you work as a mechanic? Was I was uh, a printer's mechanic at yeah. Slattery's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Slattery's then later became Otto Ryan. 
Correct. I was yeah. there actually for uh, just a little bit of Art Ryan. It must be um, 67 or 68 that Art Ryan took over. And then I left when Art Ryan was there. Was the mechanical side of things something you were always interested in? Correct. I was always, you know, messing around with uh, lawnmowers and small engines and, you know, stuff like that. Motorbikes and stuff. Taking yeah. them apart and... Taking them apart and, and hopefully, hopefully putting them back together. together again. <laughs> and all the pieces go back. Hannah Bowen was a cousin of Stevens and was reared locally. She became Mrs. Cash in the United States, and during visits home, she was always encouraging Stephen to get a visa and come work in the U.S. Eventually, he did just that and worked as a mechanic for a construction company in Martha's Vineyard in 1971. But when the visa expired and maybe some of the money too, Stephen returned home to regroup, intending to go back to Martha's Vineyard eventually. In the meantime, the offer of a job copper mining with Anglo-American in Zambia arose, and he took it. I was back here when I applied for that job. I went to London for the interview and I got a job. So then in 1972, I think January 31, it was on a Sunday, I left for Rome, Nairobi, and then on to um, Lusaka in Zambia, Lusaka to Kitwe, and then we had to drive by road to a place called uh, Chingola. Difference from Martha's Vineyard, I would imagine. Uh, quite the opposite from Martha's <laughs> Vineyard. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about that and how you how you settled in there. Well, actually, um, when I went there, it's the second biggest copper mine in the world. Actually, that uh, that in Chenga consolidated copper mines. They had both underground and uh, open pit there. So when I went there first, I couldn't believe it. I wound up underground. Uh, they said these um, ST2B Wagner front-end loaders working underground. I was at uh, three different main production levels. One was 735 feet, the other one was 1,500 feet, and the other one was um, it was 2,700 feet. So I was, uh, lucky enough, I was in the top one at uh, 735 level. Still a long way down. Yes, quite a ways down. Yeah. But uh, did it take a lot of getting used to? It did, for sure. Yes, a lot of people that worked there were people from Wales and England who had worked on previous coal, coal mines, mines yeah. and stuff. So they, I had zero experience uh, working underground. But um, when I went there, I met this uh, guy. Barry Monin was the guy's name. He's a guy from um, Lee Town, I think, County Mead. Near, I think near Butlins. He was actually um, the engineer in the open pit. So every time I meet him, I was always asking him, when am I going to the open pit? Anyways, eventually, after about six months, I got out to the open pit. So I spent the rest of my time uh, in the open pit. I spent uh, about a year in the in the truck section. That time we had, uh, they had haul pack trucks and uh, Terex trucks. Well, they had 200 tonners there. They just started to get 200 tonners when I was leaving. Well, they had uh, the compounds where the Africans uh, lived and then where the, the white people lived. But it was a mining town, so uh, all the houses and stuff that the expats would have were provided by the mine. Accommodation was provided by the mine. And the, the Africans themselves, they lived in different compounds surrounding the town. How long did you remain there then? I was there for three years. I, I got on, went on a three-year contract. I finished there in um, 
in 75. The Africans, uh, I, got, I treated him you know, very good, to be honest about it, and I never had a hassle with I've been in compounds now where maybe 50,000 black people and not too many white people. Nothing ever happened to me, and they were always very nice. Underground then, as you said, it takes quite a lot of getting used to. You were working, were you working in semi-darkness? No, well, we were lucky, uh, lucky enough. We went down in the morning, went in the cage. That's what they call it, it takes you down. And we got off at 480 level. Then we had to walk down to 735 level. And we had to walk probably about a mile in to the workshop where the workshop was. But we'd very rarely go to the face where they're blasting and drilling. You know, unless the machine would be broken down right in the face. But normally when it's due for service or anything to do with the engine, and stuff transmission they would bring it out from the face to the workshop the workshop now was blasted out of the rock there was a solid rock uh, underneath and then the guys would bring the machines out to us uh, every couple of days for service or every couple of weeks for a major service or if something happened to the engine or the hydraulic problem transmission problem or some electrical problem and when you think you were 750 feet down to think there were people three times lower correct <laughs> yes but one thing about going down in mine for down you go to warmer it gets yeah it gets hotter as you go down yeah. so i was lucky enough it was same all year round there was no difference in the temperature or, you know they i was always saying to myself here i am in the middle of africa summer all year round and i'm stuck down 735 feet <laughs> <laughs> their safety record then what was it like did you have did you have many accidents there uh, not actually not too much the only accidents they would have would be uh, they would get paid once a month and there'd be a lot of celebrations and stuff happen that around payday so you might have a few accidents like guys maybe falling asleep and stuff like that and uh, there's a few people killed alright which is unfortunate in any place but a lot of it is due to uh, you know coming in slightly under the weather it wasn't all work for Stephen either. He did get to enjoy some of the passions in his life, like boxing, Formula One racing and country music. He got to meet some of the big country music stars, and they don't come much bigger than Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson and the hag, Merle Haggard. Merle Haggard is my man. Yes, well, as Merle says, his life story and mine are the same, but we only have ourselves to blame. I met not Mahomedy, but Merle Haggard a few times in different places, in Canada and plus some places in the US. I met uh, Johnny Cash one time. I was in Nashville at the um, uh, at the House of Cash, just outside Nashville. I met um, Waylon Jennings. I met him in, um, at Caesars in Lake Tahoe another time. And um, What were these guys like to talk to? Oh, they were very nice, Actually, yeah. Oh, yeah, no problem. As the hag says, uh, his life story and mine are the same, but we only have ourselves to blame. <laughs> yeah. And you've been to all their concerts, I presume? Yes, I've been to all their concerts, yeah. Well, that's right, yeah. Well, uh, as they William Jennings, Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, Don Williams. Yes, all these guys, yeah. You've been to South America as well? Uh? Yeah, I've been to South America uh, quite a few times, actually. Uh, lots of times in South America. And my first time in South America was in um, in 89. I went to the uh, Brazilian Grand Prix. It was in Rio de Janeiro at the time. That was my first trip to South America. Then I went up to, uh, down to Falls of Guasu between uh, Brazil and Argentina and then down to Buenos Aires. Visited a few, I went to a ranch one time in, out, uh, outside of Buenos Aires. McCarthy's actually owned it right from Cork. But a lot of the places you like, old graveyards if you look around there's lots of names like McCarthy's and Sullivan's around Buenos Aires my yeah. grandmother was born in Buenos Aires oh smokes yeah. yeah yeah. a very nice town Buenos Aires yeah, yeah. well their steak is a, is a big thing down there steak and the wine Buenos Aires steak yeah but, well yeah well they got uh, their steak is are unbelievable steaks in Buenos Aires yeah. yeah Stephen Nolan worked for the Caterpillar company for almost 40 years but it nearly didn't happen 
Yes, he was searching for a job at the time, but was heading in the opposite direction, to British Columbia, in search of one. When I worked in Africa, there was a gentleman there that used to work in the logging camps in British Columbia. And he told me that uh, if you ever need a job as a mechanic, you go to the logging camps in, in British Columbia. So that's where I was heading. So anyways, I got off the bus in Calgary on a Saturday. It was a long weekend. So I picked up the Calgary Herald and looking for mechanics anywhere. So they're looking for this GCOS, which is the great Canadian oil sands, or looking for mechanics. So I had to wait until Tuesday. I phoned him up and I says, uh, you guys looking for mechanics? I says, yes, we are. Have you got Caterpillar experience? I says, yes, I have. And I uh, had to go up to Edmonton for the interview. So I got on another bus. I went up to Edmonton, found a place to stay. Next morning, I went to the uh, GCOS office in Edmonton, went for the interview. And uh, the guy told me I had enough experience. So I said, thank you very much. Coming up in parts two and three of the programme, beginning a working life in Fort McMurray and meeting Roberto Duran and Muhammad Ali. Join me for part two shortly. It was 1975 and Stephen Nolan from Ballinspittle in West Cork was heading for Edmonton in Canada to start work with the big machinery company Caterpillar. He definitely wasn't aware at that time that this was a company he would want to remain with for another 39 years until retirement in 2014. Starting work as a diesel mechanic, Caterpillar sent Stephen out on hire to a company who a few months previously had refused him a job. Irony, seemingly, always has a role to play in life. But when I worked in Africa, I used to go to the Caterpillar dealer there. Wilford Watson was the Caterpillar dealer in Zambia at the time. And when I was leaving there, this guy gave me a book of all the Caterpillar dealers around the world. Every Caterpillar dealer, even McCormick McNaughton and Cork was in there. Anyways, I flipped my page open to, well, to Canada first, then to Alberta. Our Angus was the dealer at the time. So I asked him, I phoned, had our number and everything. So I phoned him up. He said, yes, we're looking for mechanics. So he says, okay, come for an interview right now. So I went for the interview, fill up the application. And that time was before the internet and high tech came along. So um, he looked at my resume right there and he told me I could start in the morning. So I had one job with Cat uh, in Canada. That's the one job I had from 75 to, uh, to 2014. Yeah. Right. Tell me a little bit about the company. The company was a, is a fantastic company. We had a, it was great training there. We had uh, you know engine training, transmission training, hydraulic training, uh, electrical training. Uh, they had a great you know, parties, barbecues, uh, Christmas parties. Uh, 
It was fantastic, to be honest about it. Yeah. Looked after their employees very good. Very good, top yeah. shelf, yeah, no question, yeah. And what yeah. exactly do the company do? We know Caterpillar is big machinery. Yes, Caterpillar is, uh, is big machinery, yes, right. Starting out, bulldozers are probably what most people are familiar with. Are there backhoes or excavators, as you probably call them here? Big trucks. I was in the mining department, the global mining department. What happened then was actually uh, after a few months in Edmonton, they sold um, six scrapers. 651 scrapers to uh, GCUS, that, that, that oil company, and they sold them four D9s. That was before the high drive came along, D9Hs. So it was a full service contract, which means that Caterpillar had to do everything, you know, from changing the oil, changing the cutting edges, changing the engine, the transmission, hydraulic jobs, breakdowns in the field, everything. And the company didn't touch them. So anyways, the foreman asked me, would I like to go to Fort McMurray? So that's why I wound up in Fort McMurray, the same company that refused me a couple of months prior to that. June 20th, 1980 was the date for the first in a trilogy of fights between Roberto Duran and Sugar Ray Leonard. The fight was nicknamed the Brawl in Montreal and attracted more worldwide attention than any other non-heavyweight fight in history. The Olympic Stadium in Montreal was the venue. Although Leonard took the final round, it was too little, too late, and Duran earned a close but unanimous points victory. Duran would later become world champion in five different weights. Later, Stephen Nolan would travel to Panama in search of one of his heroes. Last year, I was in Colombia. So on the way back from uh, Bogota, I said I stopped in Panama City. So I went on a tour of the Panama Canal, and there was this older gentleman on the boat. Uh, so I was chatting with him, and I was asking him, what's uh, Roberto Duran doing today? Roberto Duran was five times world champion on different weights. He's a Panamanian and I said, oh, he has a restaurant in Panama City. So the next night I was in Panama City. So I asked the guy behind the reception, how much does it cost to get a taxi to visit Roberto Duran's restaurant? He says, you're an even. He's around the corner. So I went around the corner and had my dinner there that night, but he wasn't there. But he had all his boxing stuff, his gloves and his trunks and his boxing shoe, uh, shoes and all this. They were showing videos of his, actually his boxing career. So next morning I went around to the restaurant to take a picture of the outside of it. So when I go back to Canada, saying that BSing that I actually been to his restaurant. So anyways, there was this lady standing by the door. So she was smoking a cigarette. So I said hello to her in Spanish. Uh, I have a, not much Spanish, but I have, you know, just a little bit. So anyways, I had to change over to English. And this lady spoke English. So she told me, um, would you like to meet Senor Duran? I said, who wouldn't? So she said, you come back to the restaurant tonight and he'll be there. So I went back to the restaurant that night. Sure enough, he walks in. Got his autograph. Got my picture taken with him. And he gave me a shirt with the two boxing gloves uh, up on the side, on the crest on the side. Lovely memory. Yes. Yeah. And then I met another time, I met uh, George Foreman. We got a half a day, actually, when I was working in Africa in 1974, um, uh, that rumble in the jungle, George Foreman and, uh, and Muhammad Ali. We got the morning off because the fight was held in the morning over there to accommodate the primetime in the US. So I met George at that fight now at Henry Akawanda and uh, Linus Lewis in Lake Tahoe.
these machines then that you, you've spoken about, how big are they? They're huge. I mean, I've often seen photographs of a man standing behind one of the wheels and he's tiny compared. Yeah, well, actually, the wheel, the, the height of the wheel on a, a Caterpillar 797 truck, a 400-ton truck, is about 13 feet off the ground to the top of the tyre. Roughly the height of two men. Yeah, yes, yeah. correct. Yeah. What do they do then? They haul or dig or? Well, uh, they got the whole complete mining outfit. They got everything from bulldozers to what we say to clear off the, the overburden before they get to the oil sands. There may be 60 feet of it. And then they haul it away and dump it in big dump trucks. Some 797s, some 793s, 789s, and the smaller ones is triple sevens, as we call them, and uh, 793, which is a, a smaller one again what we do over there actually the, the stuff is taken off with um, bulldozers and then shovels and loaders shovels and backhoes and then they push the overburden aside what they do then they're down under what we call the oil sands in which is a couple of hundred feet layer of oil sands so they have shovels digging it out the, the shovels are um Bosiris Erie which are caterpillar today the bought them over about uh, probably seven or eight years ago and Owen K which is bought over by Cat as well they're a German hydraulic shovel I went to their factory actually a couple of years ago and um, a friend of mine was a manager there in Drummond in Germany near Düsseldorf and then they have uh, a P&H shovel which is an American shovel that got bought recently by Komatsu there's big shovels the buckets and the shovels about a hundred ton at the time they can uh, drop in a truck so the truck is a 400 tonner so four scoops and the, the truck is full. And oil sand stand, I suppose the name tells you what exactly it is. Is it oil underneath the sand? No, it, it, it's sand, which is kind of steeped in oil. It's like sand you see in um, Harbour View or Garrettstown, but its foot is black. In the summertime, it's um, you could see the oil running out of it in the summertime. So what they do, then they take off the overboard first, then they're down on the, on the, what we call it, the oil sands, and then they dig out the oil sands with these big shovels, then they take them to the dump them with these big trucks into a kind of a hopper big hopper and it goes into the plant on a hydro transport it used to be conveyor belts in the old days but they turn it over to a hydro transport which is like flushing your toilet dump it into a kind of a toilet Mm-hmm. Yeah, a feeder breaker we call them actually a feeder breaker then there's hot water in there then it's flushed and it shoots it into the plant and the oil is separating it out of it on the way in a little bit and then it gets what we call the extraction part of it the extraction the tar sands comes in and then they separate the oil from the sand at the extraction plant and then sand what we call tailings that's pumped out into a section that has been mined out already and the oil goes to the oil refinery and so, uh, it and then it goes by pipeline to Edmond to other oil refineries and some goes on to uh, the United States.
There is no doubt but that Stephen Nolan has lived life to the full and enjoyed every single second of it, be it working underground, country music, boxing or Formula One racing. When in any country, he likes to travel around and see it all. So, while in Fort McMurray, there was neighbouring Alaska, just begging to be explored. And no better way to do it than on a motorbike with your brother. Yes, that's right. I went to um, a few places. Uh, I went to a few Grand Prix, Formula One races uh, in uh, Brazil, uh, United States, and Canada, Japan. Last year, I went to Baku to the Formula One race. I've been at the British Grand Prix a few times at uh, Silverstone. Then I went on a few motorcycle trips. Uh, my brother and I, Dan, we went on motorbikes um, from Fort McMurray to uh, Prudhoe Bay, which is up on the north slope of Alaska. It's uh, 500 miles north of uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, on a, it's a gravel road. In the old days, when they built, they discovered oil in the late 60s in Prudhoe Bay, and um, they built a pipeline there from Prudhoe Bay to Valdez. When they built that road, when the pipeline was finished, it became the, the now they call it the Dalton and highway. It was called after I think a governor of Alaska one time and um, yeah we drove there uh, went out to British Columbia on, uh, to Prince Rupert on the drove out there on our motorbikes. We took the ferry up to Kitchikan then up to Juneau the Alaska capital then out what they call the icy straits out to the Gulf of Alaska over to Yakutat and we got off in Valdez and then drove up to um, Keystone Canyon Johnson Pass up to Glenelan over to Palmer down to Seward up to Anchorage up to um, Wasilla, where you might have heard of Sarah Palin. Oh, yeah. That's her yeah. neck of the woods. Yeah. And then up to uh, Mount McKinley, or Denali, as they call it today. And then up to uh, Denali National Park, and up to uh, Fairbanks, and then up to Fox, Alaska, and up to um, Coalfoot, there where the Yukon, across the Yukon River. And then you're out onto the Brooks, up across the Brooks Range to a place called Eddigan Pass. And then you're out onto the Tundra on the North Slope, and out to a place called Dead Horse, and Dead Horse to Prudhoe Bay. Beautiful country, I would imagine. It's it's unbelievable. The, the scenery is unbelievable. And all that in a motorbike. All that in a motorbike. That's right. <laughs> you don't do things in half measures. Right? Well, what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, you mentioned Formula One. How exciting are they to be actually at one? Yeah, well, it is a great excitement. Well, first of all, the, the qualifying on the on the Saturday, who's going to be on the pole. And then, of course, uh, you know, Sunday, there's usually a, a race prior to, uh, F2 race prior to the Formula One race. And it depends if you have a drive driver or your, your driver you're obviously interested in him so it's exciting to um, if your driver is up front or you know doing well yes yeah. doing well when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When Stephen Nolan arrived in Fort McMurray, the population boasted 6,000 people in 1975. When he left in 2014, it had increased to 100,000. Only for a serious fire in the town a number of years ago, the population would probably be much higher now. Fort McMurray is a, a town is in the Boreal Forest and it's about uh, 300 miles northeast of Edmonton. It's, uh, the, there's a couple of big rivers that go through there. One is the Athabasca, which starts off in the Columbia Icefields uh, further south and it flows into the Great Slave Lake and it flows into the McKinsey River and flows into the um, Arctic Ocean. And then there's the Snai, which is a smaller river, and the Clearwater. There's three rivers meet there in Fort McMurray. Would you have any big town or city close by? Well, Edmonton is the, is the closest course, city yeah. to Fort McMurray, but as I say, when I went there, Fort McMurray was a town. Then two years ago, they had a big fire there. You might have seen it here on TV. They evacuated all the people out of there, and a lot of the, there was 2,500 houses got burned there family houses and um, a lot of people left Fort McMurray the whole town was evacuated what happened then like they went to other cities like Edmonton Calgary maybe out to British Columbia some maybe east of Toronto and places and uh, about 20% of the population never came back to Fort McMurray and then they had a double whammy what happened was we had very low oil prices you know four years ago Oil prices were up around, I think, 114 bucks a barrel, and they went down there a couple of years ago to uh, 26 dollars a barrel. So you can imagine the, what that caused. The, all the development and everything just went to a grinding halt right now. As a town, then size-wise, what would it compare to? Size-wise, uh, around now, now I think it's probably around uh, 80,000. I'm not too sure what towns around here are 80,000. Very few. M- very few, yeah. yeah. I mean, it would be, slight, well, it's obviously slightly, Cork is about 150 or something. Uh, it wouldn't be as big as Cork, actually, but it, uh, it would be close enough, yeah. A mention of Africa, and it immediately conjures up images of wild places and wildlife. Lions, elephants, leopards, rhinos and buffalo. Not found wanting when it comes to travel, Stephen Nolan took the opportunity to explore the whole continent almost. The game reserves are a big thing, you know, in, in Africa, like uh, Nairobi National Park, Serengeti, uh, then the Kruger National Park in South Africa, then in Botswana, very nice national parks there. And Zambia got uh, Loanga Valley in Zambia, which is uh, at that time they had, um, I think, around 40,000 elephants up there in, in Loanga Valley. Would, would they be protected while they're there? No, that no. time, no, that time, no. Well, today is a different story with all the poaching and stuff that goes on today. 
from there then from Zambia you went where uh, from Zambia when I left the Zambia at the end of uh, or the, the, in my last shift was January 31 of 1975 a friend of mine actually an uh, English guy was an engineer Bob Wilson he was going back to the UK a lot of people from the UK actually a lot of Irish people are too nurses and uh, the most of them were engineers There's all the bosses we had they were all engineers so when I left there Bob Wilson was a friend of mine uh, we drove uh, you know Renault 4 car from uh, Chingola, Zambia to Cape Town. So we went down through um, well down to Kitwe Lusaka down to the Victoria Falls then into um, Zimbabwe then down into South Africa to Johannesburg, down through the desert and into Cape Town. He actually went back uh, to Southampton from Cape Town then I went on over to uh, Port Elizabeth East London, Durban and then uh, came back up to uh, Johannesburg and from there over to uh, Mauritius in the Indian Ocean and Mauritius to uh, Perth in West Australia. Any of these places impress you? Any place that you said, well, I wouldn't mind coming back here or even coming back to live? Yeah, yeah. well, Australia is, is you know, so different when you work in Africa and all the, you know, the colour people you go to Australia and there's a, a white lady waitress. It was totally different, mm. you know, for, for starters. Uh, Australia was very nice. I spent a couple of months in Australia. I went up to Darwin, then back down to Perth, over to Adelaide, then to Melbourne, up to Wagga Wagga, Gundagai, uh, Canberra, Sydney, which had a few people from Bell and Spittle, actually uh, lived in Sydney at the time. And then from there up to Brisbane, and then up to Hong Kong, and then over to uh, Singapore, to uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, from there to down to Ceylon, Solana, they call it, uh, Sri Lanka, to Colombia, capital city there. Then up to Karachi, Pakistan, uh, from there to Bahrain in the Persian Gulf, uh, from there to uh, Cairo in Egypt, and then across to Athens, Athens to um, Amsterdam, and Amsterdam to Dublin. That's a fair bit of travelling. That's not too shabby, yes. And I suppose for anybody who would be into or interested in wildlife, Africa is the place to go. Africa was, uh, you know, Africa was fantastic, you know. I'm not sure about today, but I don't think it was uh, as good today as it was back in in the old days. You know, there's now there's so much poaching and Africa was fantastic, to be honest, but the weather was super, the people were great and um, it was an unbelievable spot. Now a little quiz for you to see if you can match the person with these quotes. The man who views the world at 50 the same as he did at 20 has wasted 30 years of his life. Or, if you ever dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. Or, the man who has no imagination has no wings. Well, these quotes belong to Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali. No special training, just be at the fight. I'm ready to back up everything I'm saying and I'm through talking. 
I met Mahoney another time actually I was coming back from California I was going through Sacramento and um, it was an old winery there converted into a shopping centre so I um, a lady with me actually so we, I said oh well let's go in she wants to go and have a look at the shopping centre so okay so I went in there and who was in there but Muhammad Ali so he was he was signing box if you could buy a boxing pair of boxing gloves and he put them on and shuffled around with the Muhammad Ali shuffle and then he'd give them to you so I bought a pair of boxing gloves from him and he signed them for me that was my second time and the first time I met him was uh, chatting with him it was the night before the um, Leon Spinks fight in February of uh, 78 What kind of a guy was he? I mean he, he comes across as being a very affable man he, Yeah well he was actually he was very nice and uh, to be honest about it I couldn't yeah. believe it you know normally he's uh, you know he's moting off on TV <laughs> and stuff but, but uh, when you meet him in reality without the cameras there he's pretty casual of all the boxers you met who would have impressed you the most well Muhammad Ali as we grew up uh, you know I remember I think it was in 63 if, if my memory serves me correctly when he when he came to London to fight Henry Cooper you know uh, well, we had no television then we just watched on the, listening on the radio at that time mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali for sure and Roberto Duran too is a, well he was a very impressive boxer uh, and then uh, I met Marvin Hagler one time Marvin's Marvin Hagler oh yeah yeah he was very good as, uh, as well I would say due to the fact we grew up with Muhammad Ali and hearing so much about him and, and you know all the what he did was unbelievable you know Muhammad Ali the exciting part of his fights were when he predicted the rounds he was going oh, to yeah. win yes yeah. yeah, so you mean heaven and seven <laughs> that's right yes yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stephen Nolan started with Caterpillar as a mechanic Getting him to talk about the company, what they do and what they have achieved is no problem. Getting him to speak about himself, his roles within the company and his promotions and responsibilities is a different kettle of fish. But, however, I did my best. Well, I, I was a mechanic and I was in charge of um, uh, my last probably 20 years. Uh, Caterpillar came out with a grader about 20 years ago. Uh, a big grader is called the um, 24H. It, uh, the blade now is 24 feet wide in it, but they use the graders a lot on these, what we call the haul roads, due to the fact that um, any lumps fall off the trucks, and plus they keep them level and smooth, because if they hit a rock or something in the haul road with these big trucks, they're about 60 grand for a tire for these babies. Yeah, so the graders are a huge important part of uh, keeping the roads clean plus in the winter knocking the snow off the, these, these are the haul roads no? they're not public roads yeah. just the haul roads where the trucks haul from the face of the mine to the to the dump yeah. Yeah. and their latest truck then is one you refer to as the 797 Capital 797 that's their latest truck it's a 400 ton truck with a V20 engine in it it's around uh, I think the max some horsepower is around 4,300, 4,300. Pretty high. Not too, yes, yeah. not bad. Yeah. How did you feel about leaving the place and retiring? Yeah, well, it's a, it wasn't an easy for, decision for sure because, you know, after working there for 30, 38 years, mm-hmm. you know, obviously we have a lot of friends and I actually love working because we were very lucky because um, it wasn't like an ordinary job. We were always experimenting and doing stuff that you would never have the opportunity of doing in other parts. Uh, the, the company was fantastic. Like, if you wanted to come up with a better idea or something, or 
you wanted to change something or uh, they would let you do it. Plus, we had all sorts of um, facilities as well, big machine shops and welding shops and everything you need, we had it. So it was a, it was a huge challenge. Correct. Well, uh, Challenging yourself. Yeah. yeah, correct. Well, the all sense itself was a challenge. You know, uh, back in 75, a lot of people didn't think the oil sands would actually go or they would be, uh, never be become economical because due to the low oil prices. But then they had luck uh, with a couple of wars and stuff that pushed up the oil prices. And uh, that's why it became economical and feasible to um, continue on. What did you say to me again how much it costs to produce a barrel of oil? Is it $36? Yeah, when I was there, I think it was around $36 to produce it, but all the time with new technologies and stuff, they're actually getting the price uh, down. You know, that is a, they're always trying to find new ways of doing stuff and, and um, reducing the cost of, to produce a barrel. My thanks to Stephen Nolan for joining me on the programme this week. My thanks also to Mary Nolan O'Brien and her husband Joe for their help in capturing him. John Foot was our sound man this week. Thank you, John, and thank you for sharing time with us. Until Sunday evening next at 7, this is John Green. Wish you a very pleasant and safe week. Goodbye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 